Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle A's beat writer Susan Slusser, and today we welcome Walter J. Haas, the A's former CEO. Wally will tell us what he's been doing since his family sold the team in 1995, especially his involvement with Coaching Corps. And he'll talk about his unique perspective on the current work stoppage in baseball. Coming up next on A's Plus. Today on the A's Plus podcast, we continue our A's Gone By series with uh, former A's CEO Walter J. Haas, better known to, to most of us around the A's as Wally Haas, son of former owner Walter Haas. Wally, um, it's an interesting time to be talking to you. Um, there are, seem like some, some current parallels with some of the situations that your ownership group um, dealt with. You guys sold the team in 1995 uh, to the and hoffman group. Um, How difficult a decision was that at the time? Because uh, baseball was coming off of uh, the second strike you guys had to deal with as owners. Yeah, well, at least I think it was more than the second strike. But you're right. I mean, we were just talking about it. In 81, our first year, the, the, the players went on strike. And interesting, that was our first year, Billy Ball with Billy Martin. And if we had played a full year, I believe we would have had the largest increase in attendance. Obviously, the bar was pretty low when we inherited the team from Charlie Finley. In in, in in sports, in any sport between 1980 and 81, but of course, losing 80 games sort of made that go away. But in 95, when we sold the team, it was difficult. Um, we were just coming off a, a, a very difficult time with baseball, terrible acrimony with the players which unfortunately up since then i think ownership has and players have kind of learned particularly owners that we need to somehow partner better than we did which there's um but we you know in 94 they canceled the world series and what really was the, the motivating factor behind the sale was that my father was getting very ill and um, there wasn't enough interest in the family to continue to own the team. So for me personally, it was a double loss, having to go through a very difficult sale of the team. That, Unlike most businesses, you get pretty emotionally attached, or you shouldn't be in in sports, I think, frankly. Um, and then even more so knowing that my father was, was not going to be around for much longer. Mm, so those, it was, time. it was... It was a tough time, but it was the, the the decision that wasn't a hard decision. I knew we we had to do it, and I think what it took it was commendable that my father put as one of the preconditions that um, the team needed to stay in in Oakland and hooray for the community. But it made it even a more difficult negotiation, you might say. Yeah, it kind of limits your uh, uh, the group of people you wind up talking to. In the in the overused word of leverage, there wasn't much of it. But um, I think the best news has been that here we are in 2020. Although right now is a very unusual time, obviously, and the A's are still in Oakland. Um, but I think it's a it's just another example for me, frankly. And I, I said this when the A's were good enough to induct my father into their Hall of Fame last summer that I believe, and obviously I'm not the most objective person, that I thought that Walter Haas Jr. was truly the gold standard for what a community could hope for 
and an owner of a professional sports team. Yeah. I, I do believe that. Yeah, there's um, there's so much love for your your whole family, and especially your dad uh, among A's fans. It was such a great time in A's history. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that that has struck me recently um, during this time that baseball is again going through a very difficult stretch, again not having games. Of course, no one in this case, no one no one's at fault. It's the coronavirus shutdown. Uh, and there's some more difficult financial decisions among the things your dad decided during that uh, 94 strike when things were, were uh, when play was stopping was to continue to pay everyone. There, there were no layoffs. There were no furloughs. Um, obviously, a ridiculously expensive undertaking with no games going on. Uh, but what do you recall of those talks? Because that's a difficult decision. Um, but in the end, you guys took care of all your people. We did. Um you know, it's I can't I I can't give you all of the specifics just because I don't remember them frankly. But it, it it's very much in line with just the way he ran Levi Strauss and Company and his caring for people and believing in people. And um, I honestly, when I think the thing back way back in those days, he took the greatest pride with Levi's that we were manufacturing all of our jeans and pretty much in the United States and the, 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 the factory workers, the distribution centers, these very salt-of-the-earth caring blue-collar workers, he, it gave him the most joy. And, there, you know, Levi's has been around for over 160 years, and we've gone through, and the, the company has gone through world wars, depressions, pandemics, and in many of those times, they they did everything they could to keep the factories open and keep the workers working. Um, so maybe in a small way, certainly a much smaller business the A's were than Levi's, that it was the right thing to do for us at the time and um, tried to focus people and our and our staff at the time in towards the community and in, in, in giving back. Yeah. It was a real black eye, I think, if you will, for, for baseball, you know, the, the the perception of you know rich players and richer owners not being able to figure out a way to play the games has never played well in the public, frankly. Absolutely, there are no winners there. This is a whole different deal right now, obviously. Yeah, definitely. It's uncharted uncharted waters for sure. Yeah, having run a, a club um, as CEO, how, how do you kind of feel for everybody in this situation? Because there are potentially very tough decisions that have to be made. The longer you know, games go yep. without being played or potentially not being played in home stadiums and moving elsewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, refunds having to be given, no TV yeah. money coming in. Very much. I it, I think the, the thing that where it's not the same is this is, there's so much unknowns here, right? The, I mean, eventually, you know, in a strike or a work stoppage that people will come back, but you don't know how long, you know, there's just a lot of unknowns about you know, there's obviously debate in the country. Is 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 we being too safe? We're not being safe enough, and and so the unknowns of when and how I think make this issue, this you know, COVID nineteen, even more complicated and difficult for sports teams, companies to try to figure out. Yeah, um, yeah, it's that's a, a definitely. A so problem. I do feel for it, and I as as we were discussing beforehand, I from my sense, baseball maybe is the toughest just from the sheer timing of it all sort of hitting pretty much two weeks before the season start was going to start and and that's always sort of that moment of hope where all of the teams feel 
okay, you know, hope springs eternal, like in spring and everything. And so it's all just a very difficult situation. Yeah, and baseball such a so ingrained in the fabric of society, and especially right. in the spring, and then it goes away completely. It seems exactly like, like a just and a I strange think, year. And Susan, you and I have been so involved with it, but spring training is just part of that sort of hope, right? Yeah. It, it, there's something that's very, very positive and hopeful about it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, tough. Tough stuff. Now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some of those great teams in the of the '80s, early '90s. Obviously, uh, your ownership came you came in and you hired really top notch people at the very top. Right. Um, right. Uh, Tony Larusa, Sandy Alderson, and then things sort of started to take off. What was your view like as as things were sort of on the upward trend, maybe before? championships started uh kind of well i i want to you know to to take even farther back you you know way back when and it is we were kidding i was kidding about how much how long ago it was but we really did inherit a moribund franchise charlie just let it go to the bone and so we we inherited something that had no scouts and no coaches and it's a credit obviously starting with my father who was willing to give us the resources to do this but it's a real credit to my brother-in-law Roy Eisenhart who was running the team initially to to build a world-class organization and um, my dad had this saying that was a moniker at Levi's that was a tagline for many years that said quality never goes out of style and I really think he sort of took the, the piece around quality with him as, as almost a mission statement for us in building the organization and sure enough to your point, one of the first hires Roy's made was his law partner at, in Sandy. And, you know, here's this guy. What does he know about baseball? Well, look what he was became a pioneer for baseball and how baseball is looked upon now. And so, yes, and they built this farm system, and, and Sandy did to the, you know, three rookies of the year. And, and so, you know, before Tony... It was kind of, I, I, never, I remember in 81, heck, you know, it was a funny year because it was strike-shortened, but we made the playoffs, and my dad didn't even go to Kansas City for the first round thinking, well, we're going to be in the playoffs every year. Well, he learned the hard way that it isn't that easy. Um, and so there was this sort of period of, of a fallow period after that where our farm system had not gotten very good yet. And we weren't that good, and we sort of came back down to probably not playing over our heads. And so, right before Tony, we were we weren't very good at all. And so, one of to your point, one of the really key factors was Tony saying yes. One of the key factors was Jerry Reinstorf making what he has said was the worst baseball decision he ever made, which was firing Tony. And right, and I think one of the reasons Tony did come was the fact that he knew that our farm system was about to to become one of the best and start churning out rookies of the year. And I remember that winter meeting before I want to say it was '87, maybe it was '86, where just a bunch of things worked, and you know, from signing a Dave Henderson, and Dave that didn't create a lot of bells and whistles. But as he turned out to be one of our very, you know, and just everything we did from that to the, we ended up, you know, this is baseball ball card stuff, but trading for Bobby Welsh with Alfredo Griffin in a three-team trade, which was kind of a, a new thing at the time, and just everything fell in place. And from there, it just built to 
then to 1988, and we were, we were really pretty good, you might say. Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, those were <laughs> yeah. those were such fun teams. It really must have been a blast yeah. to be a part of them. Do you what What are your favorite memories or or moments from from some of those years? Well, I uh, oh gosh, I there are too many, frankly. But well, again, and speaking of things falling in place, how about you know this guy who was kind of released, Dave Stewart coming from the scrap heap and we weren't very good and he coming to us and and then tony you know pitches him in his first first game as a manager at fenway park against roger clemens he wins that and he never loses a game against roger clemens as an oakland a i think and he went i think nine and one or eight and one lifetime against clemens and the only loss was i think when he was with texas before that so that's a memory I'll never forget was that opening game of, of, of Tony La Russa's era with Dave Stewart and uh, and on and on and um, you know Bobby Welsh's 20-something game uh, wins in 19 was that 90 I think it yeah. was where and and uh, I remember a game that Dave Stewart I mean I remember some of the ones that aren't as obvious frankly Susan but well there was a game against the uh, Red Sox a home game that Dave Stewart pitched and he he prided himself in, you know, pitching complete games, and I think that game, it was a one nothing game. Somebody like Glenn Hubbard had hit a home run or something, and and he he struck out the side in the ninth inning against the Boston Red Sox, and I think one of the strikeouts was somebody like Jim Rice, and I think he threw ten pitches in that inning. It was electric. So those are kind of obscure memories, but uh, or how Dennis Eckersley helped us not get too old too fast because whatever the outcome was, which was almost always something positive, it happened really fast. Strike one, strike two, one outs, two outs. Um, so there's just so many. It was they, it was they were special teams with a really special group of guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know that Joan Ryan has a new book coming out about team chemistry, which I can't wait to read. Um, but and they some people will say, well, if you win, that's you're, you're going to have good team chemistry. But there's more. I believe there's more to that. And they were a bunch of really good guys. And I think Bob Melvin would tell you right now he's got that going too. These are really bunch of good guys. Yeah, yeah, so. big big personalities on on those eighties yeah. teams. Obviously, oh, they were. Yeah, yeah. can't say Owen yeah, and Ricky and. Well, yeah. they were. You know, here's an interesting fact. We broke the all-time road attendance record in the American League during that era, and eclipsing a New York Yankee team. I don't remember what year that they had had the road attendance record in the American League, but we broke it. So, it was, you know, we ended up. Those guys had a swagger. They were kind of rock stars, if you will. And um, in some of those games, I think. They're just when they, they they went on the field, they, they had a better chance of winning because the other team felt like they didn't, the, you know. We've heard the phrase a lot where pitchers, when I know this guy's pitching, we, we think we have a good chance to win. It felt that way a lot for many of those games. And we had, you know, we broke the Bay Area, I think, attendance record at the time before the Giants built their beautiful new stadium at 2.9 million. But that's not terrible in the old Oakland Coliseum, right? Yeah. And it was because of credit that these, these guys were, you know, people wanted to come see this team. We'll be back with more with Wally Haas in just a few moments. 
if you're running a team, I don't know if you necessarily you can have favorite players, but did you have any favorite players that you uh Yeah, admit to? I'll admit it now because no one can get really mad at me, right? And he's still my favorite player would be Dave Stewart, and I can give you some more stories about that just because he was such a great – obviously, I love to see him pitch. He, to me, he was one of the unsung big-game pitchers of all time. Um, Bobby Welsh was a dear, dear – I just I was a fan of Bob Welsh, even though I wasn't a Dodger fan. I just always was intrigued by Bob Welsh. I was thrilled when that trade came, and mm-hmm. he was such a neat, a unique guy. Dave, I mean, I liked all these guys, but those two stand out. Dennis Eckersley, I loved his just honesty as a human being, um, just so direct, and and uh, so I was very fortunate to to, to have those kind of guys around, if you will. Yeah. They were just really great guys, and. And one of the and things, Ricky is, oh, yeah. Yeah, one of the, yeah, one of the things I really liked most about those teams were some of the m- most key players and memorable players are local, Eckersley, yep. Ricky, yeah. Stu. You know those, uh, the kind of guys you know by just one one name. Those, those, right. those were all East Bay guys. Right, right. No, I, I, I'll never. You know, you talked. You just remind me of. Um, I mean, who can who can forget that whole Toronto series in the playoffs of Ricky Henderson taking over yep. that series as a as a player? And there are very few players who could in baseball could do that. And I remember um, <clears throat> Haas Appreciation Day, which was a very tough time, and it was a very hard, you know, t- wonderful thing that the staff and the players did instead of fan appreciation. They, Day they named they called it Haas Appreciation Day and Ricky, who who is now you know not in the prime of his career, took over that game. Yeah. And I remember seeing him after the game, and I said, Ricky, that was pretty special. I said, I had to do it for for your dad, and <clears throat> it was it was it was very sweet. Oh, I love that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Now, I obviously stay in touch with uh, some of the people, um, certainly from yep. those days. Who who do you um, try to keep in touch with um, besides the obvious? I you know, voice your brother-in-law. So I'm assuming. You're... Right. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly. Uh, well, from the front office, it's been so. It's, that's the other part that's so special about that time is that we really, you know, as much as it's this is overused, it did feel like a family in the front office. We owned the team for 15 years, and I'm guessing the average tenure of our front office had to be at least 12 of those 15 years. Um, people didn't leave. They liked working there. It was obviously special being in sports, but it was there was a real, really wonderful culture. And so as, you know, thanks to the 89 team, there has been a reason for on-field reunions, and I do appreciate that this current ownership of the A's has brought back, you know, and, and wanted to make the Oakland A's part of the the A's history, something that people remember and they've they've honored teams from the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s so we've had many 89 reunions um on the for the team but we also have had a few for our front office so those have always been very special but certainly obviously my brother-in-law but sandy is we've stayed in touch and i, I mean i just he he was obviously he revol, helped revolutionize how people view baseball and how they uh look at players and evaluate players but he's just one of the great human beings so I, I felt very fortunate to have worked with him as my partner for those years and I was so pleased to see him 
come back as a consultant with the A's. I know that when he left the A's, he uh, went to MLB and was great in overseeing the umpires and all of that. But I, I got, I had to believe that when you don't have a team to root for and to sort of be emotionally attached to, it's not quite the same. So I get why he went to the Mets, and I'm just so pleased that he's doing something with the A's again. Yeah, it's great having him around. He's a, first first yeah. and foremost, from, from a reporter standpoint, he's a phenomenal talker and very funny. <laughs> yeah. he's, he has a wonderful dry sense of humor that you never would think somebody who can be so so sort of buttoned down at times and disciplined can have. No, yeah. I'm, I'm biased for sure. Oh, he's absolutely hysterical. Uh, now tell us what you've been doing since the sale of the team sure. in 95. I know you're involved with um, a couple of different charitable endeavors and yeah. foundations, um, starting yeah. with, of course, the Evelyn Walter Haas Jr. Fund, which you, you right. uh, have run my, for a number of years. Well, my, I chair the board. I don't run it, uh, but I chair the board, and I'm, it's been a great, it's been a wonderful opportunity to, to try to give back. Um, and so I've done that. And I took over the chairmanship when my mom passed away, but I was been involved as a trustee and a co-chair up to that point. And um, we, we try to do good things like others, but it's it's uh, you know it, it's a foundation that my mom and dad founded. So I always we always have their legacy and their values at, at our heart as we we try to do good and you know frankly try to pretty much even the playing field for a lot of people. Um, and it was through that work that uh, I got very involved in creating a nonprofit, which you're aware of, called Coaching Corps. And um, it was initially funded and still is funded in part by the Haas Junior Fund, but now many others fortunately see that, that it, it's, it's worth getting behind. And, and, what, and it, the idea for Coaching Corps really did come out of our experience with the A's and seeing how the power of sports could bring a community together just and, and um, particularly get a kid's attention and really captivate them. And, and certainly when you're successful um, on the field, even more so than not, that the, the psychic lift that you see in a community when a sports team has success, you've seen it most recently, obviously with the Warriors and before that with the Giants, and we had our, our moments too. So that, that was very important. But essentially what Coaching Corps does is, you know, Susan, is we recruit and train volunteers to become coaches so that more boys and girls in low-income communities can connect with a great coach, a coach who can serve as a mentor, a friend, or even in some cases their most important teacher. It's amazing to me how many times I've gone to talk to somebody who has been successful, and if I ask them if they ever had a, a meaningful coach really change their lives, how many people raise their hands or had a child that had that experience and I say well what would your life have been like if you didn't have it so this is sort of where we've landed with coaching core and we also landed there because when we owned the ace we saw that there was a growing really difference of opportunity for kids to even play sports let alone have a great coach depending on what zip code they lived in and so we saw that there was this really growing need for for this and coaches being the impact point and it's been it's been phenomenal the impact and as you know and as you've experienced it through this we partnered every year with NBC Sports Bay Area and they put on this incredible dinner which they've televised and through their their relationships with professional sports team every professional sports team in Northern California 
has supported this dinner and had a player come and honor that coach or person that was made a difference in their lives from Steph Curry honoring Bob McKendrick from uh, Davidson to Draymond Green and Tom Izzo from Michigan State to Stephen Piscotty honoring his dad, you know, who was this incredible little league coach. He it was a great. He he was the A's representative this this year earlier this year when you could get together in a room with other people and um, his father coached all three of his sons who all went and signed uh, contracts with with professional baseball teams all graduated from college it was a phenomenal story so it's and it's been given us this opportunity to honor our volunteer coach of the year that always usually brings the house down so that's been very special as a way of sort of really being able to share what we do with the, with the larger audience and what what we, you know so obviously right now we're in this situation where up to that point we were reaching almost 40,000 kids a year mostly in California but also in other states who otherwise wouldn't have a coach and be able to play sports through coaching core and then covid-19 hit and what's been so kind of gratifying these very difficult times is that our our staff has been redeployed what we do well is we have the capacity to recruit volunteers and right now the, the, the families and kids that we serve are with schools closing are without um, the ability to access either free or partially free lunch and breakfast that we get at school and so our, our staff has been out recruiting volunteers to be able to get to help food banks and get food to these kids and families and other needed uh, supplies and it's it's been it's been you know in a difficult time it feels better to be able to be still um, helpful in this way and in fact if people are interested in and they feel safe and aren't in part of a you know viewed as a vulnerable population group is um, referenced by the CDC guidelines they they should go to our website at coachingcore.org and sign up as a volunteer and we'll connect them with organizations but it's also been really gratifying Susan to see how local athletes you speak of Dave Stewart in this time he's been going around and calling his ex-teammates and friends and current A's to see if they wouldn't make donations to help so that we can do this work and immediately Ricky Henderson and Shooty Baffett raised their hand and supported this and I just learned that's been the same with Marcus Simeon and Stephen Piscotti and C.C. Sabathia, and it's just really heartwarming to see Dave Stewart continue to be this incredible community citizen, as have these other athletes. And I just learned very recently that um, we've also been are a part of what's being called the Oakland Pledge, and we are one of five Oakland-based nonprofit organizations participating in this called the Oakland Pledge. It's supported by Marshawn Lynch, who's another great Oakland athlete, as you know, Who's who's cares very much about the community, and the Oakland Pledge is localized campaign that directs people who wish to donate to pre-vetted nonprofits who are currently bringing relief to those directly affected by COVID-19. So people want to uh, support Coaching Corps or other worthy nonprofits helping in. These are vetted nonprofits, and this this pledge was started by Ben Simmons. 
from the Philadelphia 76ers and his brother and with the Philadelphia pledge. So it's, I, I, it's very heartening because we've always used athletes to sort of amplify our methods, message, message, I'm sorry, for volunteers, and now it's happening here in Oakland also. Yeah, I was going to ask you how uh, the coronavirus crisis is affecting things such as fundraising, but it sounds like it, you've, you've switched things up to kind of address specifically things that are going on as the result of coronavirus and, and COVID-19. Well, we're we're trying, yeah. And I think, again, because we, our main work is we have the capacity to recruit volunteers, which is what we do anyway, it seemed like a natural pivot for us to be able to do this so we can hopefully be helpful and relevant with a crisis that is upon us right now. And again, those that the, the families and kids that we serve are we're already on the margins anyway of our society and this they're they're I think they're the ones probably being impacted more than, than anyone. So we're we're pleased we can be in part helpful here. Yeah, the co- the coaching core dinner um, annually right. is just about one of my yeah. favorite events ever, and I, I know so a lot of people think like, oh, a well, long sort of dinner with a lot yep. of speakers, <laughs> snoo- snooze. But uh, I, it's such a tearjerker. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that, like, I'll, um, Marcus Simeon talking about Ron Washington yeah. and what he Was meant for cool? his career, yeah. and. Kendall Graveman talking about the impact his dad had on him, not just as a coach, but in teaching him how to be a, a good person and a, a giving person. And the, every year you think nothing can top what you're hearing from mm-hmm. some of the athletes. And they're really, you know, deep emotions and gratitude that they have for the coaches in their lives. But then the the actual uh, youth coach that's honored every year, every year brings down the house, as you mentioned. Um, and it's so affecting to hear because usually it's, one of the kids that they're coaching presents them, and uh, that is—it's just amazing the difference that they they can make in um, some marginalized communities and underserved communities, and and kids that are looking for mentors. It's just—it's just remarkable. I absolutely love what you guys do with your well, organization. Thank you, Susan. I'm glad you feel that way, but I, I I agree with you. I'm not objective here, but it's a great, frankly, it's an incredible partnership, and that NBC. Sports Bay, Bay Area has done for us and with us. It was started by Ted Griggs, who who joined our board because he he was a friend of Joan Ryan's, who's also a board member of mine. We took him out to lunch to tell him more about our work, and I asked him that question: Did you have a memorable coach make a difference in your life? Fifteen minutes later, when he stopped crying, um, he not only had told us this very hard wrenching story about how meaningful the high school coach had been for him but he joined our board and at his first board meeting after hearing one of our coaches talk about his work he was a coach for us at UCLA a volunteer student coaching in the inner city there Ted said I have this great idea for a dinner and I'm thinking oh gosh another dinner just like you said and then he starts saying what if I could get every professional sports team too and that's how this Evolved, And the other thing about this dinner is, you know, it's not too long because it's a TV show. There's something about it that just is not only very inspiring, but it, it, it just works. And so we're, we've been very, we, we've really been very fortunate that we have this partnership and that people not only at the dinner can, can feel it, but it, it's being televised and um, look forward to hopefully being able to do it again next year. 
Yeah, and you're moving into some other areas too. I know, obviously, this that you you have volunteers throughout the state, but um, you were mentioning right. before we started the podcast that um, that you were going to have a dinner in, coming up in San Diego. Right, San Diego. We've had this would have been our third dinner there. Um, uh, it's the same format, and San Diego is one of the are about ninety percent of our of our work with coaching core is in California. The other five or ten is. We have chapters in uh, Boston and in Atlanta um, and in Baltimore, where Under Armour has been our main sponsor over the years. Uh, but it's mostly California. We and we we and we were about to through NBC do an inaugural uh, game changer in Washington D.C. They wanted us to come there, so it's a it's a it's a magical night and it's a wonderful way of introducing our work to a new community. And hopefully, when hopefully hopefully when things normalize we can start doing those things again. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, um, I have to ask, how much do you pay attention to the A's now? Do you still <laughs> follow them? Do you get... Oh, I do. Yeah. You know, I do. They, and and I, I must say that I, I I would sometimes bite my lip over player decisions. I'm, I'm a fan at heart now. Uh, how can you not be when you get into this business? Uh, I grew up a Giants fan, and I, I used to, you know, I'll be honest, I used to root against them when we were in in this business they were our competitors there was a lot of other things you could do with your spare time in beautiful northern california than go to a baseball game and so not only did i have to root really hard for the a's but i kind of quietly rooted against the giants i'm sorry to say larry's a a friend i I know the giants well and i don't root against them now but i still root much harder for the a's you bet (laughs) i it's it's in it's in my blood now i do have green and gold glasses and uh live and die with their decisions and all that good stuff yeah it's maybe be not kind of, as hard though that's that's all right though yeah it's got to be kind of hard not to sometimes compare like how things are done now versus how you guys might have done it i would imagine uh, yeah I, I you know and look i i get it um my father was very benevolent and i don't i didn't i don't expect necessarily oakland to ever have the the highest payroll in baseball again that wasn't something i was proud of but i i did love my father's commitment with all those good teams to keeping them together Wally Haas, thanks so much for joining us on A's Plus. We really appreciate it. Thanks for your interest, Susan. It's great talking to you. Our thanks again to Wally Haas for joining us on A's Plus. You can learn more about Coaching Core at coachingcore.org. Our producers today were G. Allen Johnson and King Kaufman. We'll be back again later in the week. Thanks for listening. A's Plus is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Support A's Plus and all of the Chronicle's journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.